This episode of The Backdrop, Untold Stories in Golf, is brought to you by New Club Golf Society, a humble community of golfers connected by our love for the game. Follow us on social media with the handle New Club Golf. Hey, Peter Malik, Welcome back to The Backdrop. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's been a while. I, uh, I'm pretty excited about today. I actually you know, woke up. We haven't had any sports on the television or golf to, uh, to get us through these difficult days. And, you know, I already busted out the master's cup getting ready for this coming <laughs> week. And, um, and we got some, something pretty cool in store for everybody today. But, uh, but I guess first off, let me welcome you as the newest ambassador of the new club golf society. Congratulations, man. Thanks. Yeah. I appreciate it. I don't really get a lot of, uh, honors like that. So it's nice to be recognized. I appreciate it. I'm excited. So it'll yeah, be fun. Man, you're, you're the uh, the encyclopedic mind that our society always needed. So excited to have you join us. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like you said, it's it's been has it been about a year since we last had you on the podcast. I, th- I think so. Yeah, I think July last uh, July of 2019. So almost almost a year, about ten months, nine months. So. And we were probably doing what the PGA Championship or the uh, no, we were doing the British Open. Maybe was our yeah the Open, time. yeah, yeah. And so for those that haven't uh, listened to those fantastic episodes with you, you know our man PJ here. He uh, he's done some work for PGA Tour Radio, um, Fox Sports. You know, really, uh, I, I like to think he is an encycl- encyclopedic mind of of golf events, even though you're only like, you know, 21 years old, um, you have this wealth of, <laughs> of knowledge and information about, uh, pro golf and some of our favorite golf tournaments, uh, including the masters. Um, you know, you shared with us before, but where the heck does all this info come from? Like, wh- where did you get this, this interest in, in pro golf? Uh, I think a lot of it just has to do with my dad. I mean, my dad, obviously he, he's, uh, been in the game for a long time. It's his profession. He's a professional golf agent. So he's, uh, you know, always telling us stories about, you know, different players or different tournaments. And I think just some of that, just growing up as a kid, you just, you're forced to listen to it, whether you want to or not. So, uh, you just kind of hear about it. And, you know, like he always says, he wished that I had, he wished I had this memory, you know, in math class and history and, and uh, English because I probably would have went to Harvard if I had the same the same uh, interest. But uh, no, but, you know, so he you know, it's been his life for the last 30, 35 years. And, um, you know, I'm 24. So our house is a, it's a big sports house, not just a golf house. Um, but yeah, I mean, he he kind of instilled that a little bit, I guess, in, in me and my brother. And um and I probably took it a little farther than my brother does, but my brother's pretty quiet about it. He knows, he knows his stuff too. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, obviously as I got older, I played everything growing up and then started gravitating towards golf. And uh, I think just the history of the game, um, it, you know, it interested me. Uh, I wanted to learn about, you know, the players before me. um, And that's why like a lot of, you know, my favorite players, people ask me that it's not, who I grew up watching. It's, you know, guys in the past that I didn't really see, but because I've seen so many, you know, tapes of them, I, I feel like I've watched them. So, 
um, yeah, I mean, it comes from that. And then I've just, you know, I've always, that's what I've wanted to watch. My mom always says that there's a rule in the house that no old golf, um, which, you know, we kind of defy a little bit, but I think that's where, that's where I've gotten it. Well, during this time, who knew that your superpowers would come in handy so well uh, <laughs> during the, the post-pandemic days of, of uh, yeah. no sports? I mean, we all we can watch is old golf. And so, uh, you know, let's talk about what we're doing here. You know, you and I uh, had this on the calendar to do our typical preview for the Masters, right? To get, you know, all the pools and, and all the information on back stories of players and and that was going to be what we do. Well, it's postponed or canceled. Is it officially canceled yet? Or are they still holding out? For I don't think it's officially canceled, but it's it's looking like it. I mean, today, the day that we're talking right now, I mean, the Olympics just got postponed. And I mean, it looks like summer 2020, it doesn't look like anything's going to happen right now. So, you know, baseball is being pushed back and, you know, the NBA season's up in question. And I think the PGA Tour, I don't you know, it doesn't look like they're going to be having anything either. So we'll see what happens. But yeah, these are, these are definitely odd times. It's like a movie. Right. Well, so we, what we decided, and, and I give you all the credit here because um, I think it's a brilliant idea. And that's, that's, you know, we're all going to be uh, missing masters in our lives uh, for this upcoming week. So what we, what we thought would be fun is, you know, not to select the, the tournaments. You know, if you go on YouTube, you can watch, any final round of the masters pretty much ever right i don't know what year they started maybe like in the you can see maybe a late 60s round or 70s but you got every uh round of the masters and people are going to gravitate to you know 2004 phil mickelson or 1997 tiger woods and um you know maybe in 2019 tiger woods you know that's what people uh kind of go to first but as you and i were talking we kind of wanted to go to maybe the more forgotten masters or not forgotten but obscure and entertaining you know if you're gonna sit down on the couch and watch four hours of an old golf tournament it better be a good one uh so i i pose the question to you i go hey you know you know every single masters and and uh the outcome what what are two let's just pick two to get us started um that people can you know get uh, uh, maybe a memory of it or some new information of it. And then when they get to sit down in front of the TV and watch it, they're, they're hopefully going to enjoy it that much more. Um, they can also watch it first and then listen to the podcast. But I, I think this is going to be kind of a fun exercise of, of doing a deep dive on, on two years. So getting us started, uh, let's dive in. So what was your first, uh, what was your first masters that we want to go into? I think we, you know, I think first of all, we picked the 1998 Masters. Um, Marco Miro is 41 years old, uh, pretty much kind of at the end of his career. He had won 14 times on tour, but hadn't really been that close in majors. Um, had a, a uh, finished third in the 1988 U.S. Open at, um, at Brookline uh, when Curtis Strange won in a playoff over Nick Faldo. I uh, missed that playoff by shot. He needed to birdie the last hole on 18 and uh, did not. Um, but other than that, you know, Mark, very solid, uh, very, you know, good player, made a ton of money over his career, but was kind of lacking that one glaring thing on his resume of being a major champion. And uh, at 41 years old, it just didn't look like that was going to happen for him in his career. And uh, he says that, you know, he kind of accepted that at that point. Um, you know, his kids were getting older. He was getting older. Uh, I think he was kind of, looking forward to, you know, a couple more years on tour and then kind of, you know, setting back and, and watching his 
kids grow up and, um, you know, I guess, you know, life has other plans. I think he always says that the fact that he kind of accepted the fact that he never won a major um, and stopped putting so much pressure on himself going into that week, that really kind of opened it up for him and let him allow to just play free golf. What was uh, his year like in, in 98 going in, in terms of competition? Uh, I mean, it was, you know, he had some solid finishes. He didn't do anything, you know, crazy. But I think the biggest thing was that, um, you know, he he had won the Pebble Beach Pro-Am for the fifth time in 97. Um, that's a tournament that he, you know, he, he and Phil Mickelson have won that tournament five times. I mean, his nickname is the Prince of Pebble. So he's obviously obsessed with that golf course. And then he won uh, February in 97, uh, the Buick Invitational, and then, you know, his last two professional or his last two PGA tour wins are the 98 masters and the 1998 British open. And, um, so his game, you know, leading up to the 98 masters was in solid form, but not as of good a form as, uh, as Freddie couples who we'll get into a little later, but Freddie, he had won already had won the hope, uh, the Bob hope in 98 in January. Uh, and he told, uh, writer and author John Feinstein going into the 98 Masters that he was in the best position in his life, you know, personally. Uh, he was dating a new girlfriend at the time. Um, he felt like his game was the best it had ever been. I mean, he this is a guy who won in 92, won the Masters in 1992. Um, somebody that people thought was going to be, you know, the number one player in the world for a long time until Tiger came around. And, um, you know, he told John that, look, you know, if I don't win this term, I don't know what else I have to do. I mean, I'm playing the best golf of my life right now. I'm in the best, you know, spot of my life personally. And uh, he just felt like everything was kind of coming together for him going into Augusta and he loved the golf course. I mean, he had played great there even after 1992. And um, I think that he just expected to, he expected that he was at that point, he was the best player in the world. He felt like, and uh, he just, he felt like he should win that golf tournament no matter what. That's yeah. He's a, critical uh character in in the, how this out pl- plays out and uh you know by the way i'm not going to be able to contribute a whole lot prior to the sundays you know i i re-watched these already in prep of our discussion here uh and i'll be adding plenty of commentary from a sunday perspective uh, probably co- color commentary if i had to guess um but but prior to that you know i'm relying relying on on your info so uh freddie's playing well he's hot um, I was curious about Tiger in 98 because, you know, as I watched Sunday, he wasn't really there. He, he made a, a, an early stage, I think, but he wasn't really in the discussion on this one, which would lead a lot of people to think not to watch it. But I was really curious. You know, he came off in 97 where he blitzed the field record setting year for the Masters. Um, basically, you know. I don't know if it's coming out party, but it is like world stage. This is your guy. Uh, what what was his 98 like? I, I, I don't even know. Did he have a good season going up, leading up to this one? Yeah, I mean, Tiger had only won once in 98 after, you know, blowing the world apart in 97. And um, in the fall of 97, Tiger and his swing coach, Butch Harmon, they decided to, you know, completely – revamp a swing, kind of break it down and retool it back up. And that's, you know, the swing that we see in 1999 and two, and obviously in 2000 when he wins the Tiger Slam. So 98 was pretty much a big rebuilding year um, for his game. 
uh, Butch went to him and said, Hey, why don't we kind of do it piece by piece? Why don't we, you know, I don't want to throw the book at you while you're still trying to play competitively or, you know, or do what Nick Faldo did and kind of take a year off and just try to, you know, if you want to do it all together, we can do it, but don't play competitively. And Tiger's like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to compete. I want, I want you to do it all at one time and I want to play. And so he struggled in 98. Um, you know, I mean, he won once, but he, uh, you know, for him, it was a struggle. And, uh, and then going into 99, you know, he won seven times, I believe. And then he won nine times in 2000 with three majors. Um, so obviously it paid off, but, you know, I think he, you know, at that time, his game wasn't, he wasn't the number one player in the world in 98 going into the masters. It was Ernie Els. And, um, and then, you know, we'll get into it a little bit later on Sunday, you know, Jack Nicholas at 58 years old, made a run there on, on the back nine and, uh, he was paired with Ernie. So, but yeah, Tiger just wasn't, you know, he tied for 10th. I mean, he played okay, but that was going into that year. I mean, everybody thought that Tiger was going to win the next 10 majors after what he did in 97 or the next 10 masters. Sorry. And his effect from that win, you just kind of felt you could feel it in the telecast a little bit um, of, you know, the discussion that he was starting to shift. And and you can also kind of see it in some of the, you know, the old dogs. Like, I mean, Mark O'Mara obviously attributes a whole lot of his resurgence to uh, uh, to Tiger and his, his friendship there. Um, but was Freddie – it seemed like Freddie had a new chip on his shoulder this year too. Was it a little, do you think it has a little bit of this kid that did things differently came out and just kind of shocked a lot of these pros into to waking up and, and going after it? Yeah, I think, you know, nobody had really affected golf the way the tiger had. I mean, even Jack Nicholas, I mean, you know, there's Arnold Palmer, there's Gary player. Um, I think when tiger came on the scene, I mean, nobody had seen that talent. I mean, Paul Azinger, talks about when he played with him in 97 in the second round of the masters he says he had never seen anybody hit a golf ball like that before in his life and the kid was 21 years old I mean he said he didn't he's like if I gotta go up against this guy for the next 10 15 years he's like I better find something else to do because this is just not gonna work for me and uh you know he said that he was just amazed by it and um I think you know a lot of people I think it was kind of one of those things where it was either hey we got to go to work and and you know really kind of hone my game um, because, you know, basically we're just playing for second right now. I mean, I think that's what everybody was, you know, scared about, but, you know, at the same time it's golf and golf affects everybody in different ways. And, um, you know, Tiger, you know, obviously going through in the last five, six years, you know, with all the personal things that he went through and injuries, I mean, it shows you that not everybody's invincible, but, you know, at that time, I think it definitely, you know, kind of put a fire under, different people and, you know, made them kind of work harder. And uh, I definitely did for Marco Mira, obviously, like you touched on. Last thing, last thing on Tiger, and then we'll move on to the other characters. Cause there's a, there's a good list for 1998. Um, what, uh, you know, him winning in that fashion in 97, what changes did they make to the golf course in 98? Was this the official start of hey. Tiger proofing? No, not yet. The Tiger proofing really started in, uh, in 2002, after 2001, uh, when he won the Tiger Slam, um, they made some like subtle changes, but the real big changes, they, the difference between 2001 and 2002 with the golf courses, it was like a difference of 800 yards. Um, they lengthened oh, okay. it that much, um, especially in on the 18th hole. Tiger in 2001 on Sunday, he had he hit driver sand wedge from 60 yards. Um, just 
those two bunkers on the left just weren't even a thought. They asked him that in his press conference, and he basically was like, what bunkers? Like, what are you talking about? And uh, I don't think that really made the members very happy. And uh, so they moved that tee back almost 70 yards on 18. And so now you have the shoot. Before that, there was no shoot. I mean, nobody worried about, you know, clipping the trees on the left or right like Spieth did in uh, 2018 in the final round. Um but that was that was just never a uh, never a concern until 2002. Yeah, I, I was I was in deep looking for other uh, years that were a bit obscure that we could actually uh, talk about. And you know, Tiger's not the first one to to strategically blow past those bunkers. In '91, Ian Woosnam, for a little man, he could move the ball. I I saw him. You could yeah. tell he was playing like a big big ass hook. You can tell he was like, I am just not missing in the trees on the right. I am going as far over those bunkers as I can. And he swung out of his shoes to carry those bunkers in 91. And I, I was like watching that. I go, oh, wow. Okay. And that, now I get it. You just, it's the safe spot to miss. Right. Yeah, exactly. And there was no trees over there uh, back then too. So, you know, now it's out of bounds. Um, like Bryson DeChambeau in 2016 was an, he was an amateur on Friday. He, uh, he had the lead by a shot going in to the weekend and he made an eight duck hooked one out of bounds on uh, left and never found his ball. And uh, so now it's like, you know, over there it's, it's like porta potties and like a, I think there's like a sandwich hut over there. But before that, you know, 20 years ago, it was just, it was just uh, number eight. So you could just blow it way left. Like tiger did on 90 in 97, he hit it so far left. He was actually an eight fairway. Um, you see that video of him with all the fans. I mean, he was, it was crazy. So it, it just it didn't mean anything. I mean, there's no trees over there or anything. So, yeah. Uh, all right. Back to 98. I got a sidetracked. Um, wh- what prior to Sunday, I'm obviously itching to dive into Sunday. I mean, that's where the action happens, but anything else prior to, to Sunday of note? Well, Freddie, Freddie couples had the lead or, you know, was co-leading each day. Um, he shot 69, 70, 71. Uh, he was t- going into Saturday. He was tied with David Duvall and David kind of struggled on Saturday, shot 74. David's kind of an interesting character going into Sunday. I mean, the guy, here's a guy who was kind of, you know, he was touted as the next great American golfer coming out of college. He was a three-time All-American at Georgia Tech. Um, he got, got his card, had to go through uh, what is now the Corn Ferry Tour, got his card. And, um, you know, he, he, kind of came out blitzing him and his first win and um in the mid 90s he he went when he figured out how to win he won the next two weeks in a row so he won three tournaments in a row after winning his first tournament um and i think that shows you just the kind of the competitor that he was i mean tiger always when he's asked about his rivals in his career he always says that the only guy that he was that made him you know, really pay attention to the leaderboard and knew that he was going to stick around, that he wasn't going to falter was when David Duvall's name was up there. He said, everybody else, he's like, I kind of knew that, you know, Hey, they might get, they might be affected by the pressure. Mickelson, Singh, Els, all those guys. He's like, I never, um, you know, David, he was a beast. I mean, from 98 to 2001, the guy could have legitimately won four masters in a row. I mean, 98, he he missed uh, being in a playoff with Marco Mira by a shot. 99, he made a run. He run late on Sunday on the back nine uh, to try to chase down Jose Maria Othabo. He finished sixth, but it was kind of like a it was 
kind of a funny six. I mean, he was only three or four shots behind. Um, and then 99, or sorry, 2000, he was in the final round with uh, Vijay Singh, or final pairing with Vijay Singh in the final final round. And then uh, in 2001, he had the lead going into the back nine on Sunday over Tiger and Mickelson. Um, so he could have easily and lost by two shots. Uh, Tiger birdied. Tiger birdied 18. Uh, but yeah, I mean, he could have easily won four green jackets in a row. And I think that was the thing was that he, he just loved the place so much. He was, uh, you know, for a guy who hit a fade on a course that everybody talks about how you have to hit a draw. I mean, he, he was such a good driver of the golf ball. It didn't matter for him. I think he, he was a great ball striker, good iron player. And, uh, he just fell in love with the golf course. And, um, he was the type of competitor that he just what the things that he went through in his life. I mean, his his brother died when he was a kid. He had to give his brother his bone marrow, and he still ended up dying. Um, I think those things kind of shaped David into the person, the competitor that he was. Where it was like, hey, this is golf. This isn't life. And what I went through in my life, it's not going to affect me on the golf course. And so that's why he kind of gets the bad rap with the sunglasses, and he didn't show any emotion, and he had the tobacco tucked between his teeth, and. He, you know, he wouldn't wave to you when he made a birdie or he, he wasn't like Tiger, you know, doing fist pumps. He just kind of went about his business and would shoot 66 and and just kind of say, hey, you know, thanks for letting me kick your ass. And uh, and I think that was kind of, you know, the player that he was. And so I think you know a lot of people took that as arrogance and, you know, he kind of got a bad rap. But truly, he's, he's a great guy. He kind of had a little bit of a, of a Curtis Strange attitude in him. But um. But yeah, I mean, he going into that Sunday, he was kind of, you know, he was in his late 20s. He was looking for his first major championship. He was feeling like he was going to be the guy to beat. Um, but, you know, going into that Sunday, Freddie was in the lead. And then Marco Mira, he's paired with Marco Mira, uh, who was two shots back of him. And at tie for second going into Sunday, I mean, it was Marco Mira, Paul Azinger, and Phil Mickelson. So you had three world-class players there who were two shots back of Freddie. Um, obviously Zinger won the PGA championship in 93 and then Mickelson hadn't won a major yet at that point, but everybody thought that he was kind of the best player without one. And then, uh, Duvall, like I said, he shot two over on Saturday. So he was six or three shots back. He was at three under and, uh, he was going to be paired with Jim Furyk that day. Any other, uh, characters that were in the mix on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, uh, any of that that are interesting to note that we just didn't even see on the telecast on Sunday. <laughs> I kept, I kept thinking I mean, just that. like I mean, random guy. Yeah. Random guys like Paul Stankowski, Scott Hoke. I mean, they were a shot back of Freddie after the first day. Um, just kind of, you know, you get like random guys who play well the first two days and then they shoot a million on Saturday. Cause they realize that, you know, Holy shit, I've never been in this position in my career. Uh, but you know, who have no idea what they're doing. Like Scott McCarron. I mean, you know, just looking through the leaderboard quickly. I mean, guys like that who had no business even being close to the leaderboard, but was there, there was a year where Stankowski either led or co-led after Thursday, maybe Friday, but I think it was just round one. And I probably mentioned this before. Every time I hear his name, I love that dude. I, I, uh, in Akron, Ohio, used to carry the signs for the pros and, uh, when I got done carrying for somebody, I actually just went out. Uh, or no, it was early. It was the like first guy off because he was playing so terrible. And it was around this time. It was like 98, 99. And I just followed Paul Stankowski every single shot for 18 holes. He finally like looks at his caddy around like 13 or something. He goes, is this kid following us on every shot? 
And he's like, yeah. And there's nobody following Paul Stankowski. I think he was maybe playing with, um, you know, the pace guy. Um, and, and he let, and he, so he waved me over and just let me in the rope. And I got to walk with Paul Stankowski, oh, that's cool. hear, him, hear him talk to his caddy. There was no security or anything. You know, nobody cared. But uh, I'm a lifelong Paul Stankowski fan because of that. So <laughs> I thank you for mentioning his name. That's funny. Yeah, I think he was leading the 97 Masters, the one that Tiger won too. But uh, yeah, that's that's what was, after right. the first day. But honestly, those kind of five guys going into the final round were the ones that were really making noise. Um, but then yep. you know we had 58 year old Jack Nicholas who kind of made a run there on on Sunday. Well, so you mentioned Nicholas. Should we dive into Sunday then? Yeah, it's yeah. Let's do it. it, it it's time. So. Uh, what I thought was so cool about this in my own memory is I'm just a little kid and I'm obsessed with the game of golf, right? Mostly because of, um, uh, tiger <laughs> winning in the fashion that he did. And, you know, I just remember actually watching this thing, uh, with my dad and it was the only time I can remember where, you know, my dad always talked about how great Jack Nicklaus was and, and just the best competitor that ever was the best, um, mental strength of any golfer that's ever lived. And, and the whole time I'm sitting there thinking like, what are you talking about? Didn't you see what that tiger did do? The dude did like he's at dad's tiger. Is, I was already telling my father that tiger was better than Jack Nicholas with one major. And, and it was like contentious. I remember my dad just looking at me like, Hey kid, you don't know what you're talking about. Um, so this, <laughs> this was really interesting to me. It was when I was like a defiant child and, and my dad was, it was the only time where I got to watch Jack Nicklaus uh, compete with the guys that I was, was rooting for, the guys that I was watching. So tell us a bit about like the coverage starts and, and everyone that's sitting down to watch this will, will obviously notice. I mean, they talk about Jack for the first 15 minutes of the coverage, but he was in the hunt. Right. Yeah. I mean, as soon as they literally, they open the broadcast and the first thing out of Jim Nance's mouth is you're not going to believe what you're about to see, what we're going to show you, you will not believe. And I mean, Jack's 58 at the time. It's 12 years after he won. 12 years after he won the uh, the 86 Masters when he was 46 years old with his son Jackie on the back. And um, I mean, Jack, he was one under starting the day. He makes birdie on two. He chips in for birdie on three. He bogeys four, but then he birdies six and seven back to back. So he's four under now. And he's kind of making a run. And that's what's unbelievable is that the guy's 58 years old and, you know, he's out of shape. He's short. I mean, he, you know, he does not, he looks like your average, you know, dad yeah. who's playing at your country club on Saturday and Sunday. And the guy's trying to, <laughs> trying to win a seventh degree jacket. Dude, it, you know, it, it didn't, it, it wasn't in perspective for me back then, but now it is. I mean, he's walking around with like a little bit of a hitch in his giddy up, you know, he's got a little bit of like a lean into his right side. He looks like an right. old man. And he is just assaulting the golf course right off the bat, start of the coverage. And, and that was something I totally forgot until rewatching it, um, which makes it such a great pick. So kudos to you for picking 98 because I didn't even think about Nicholas um, at 58 years old. That was just astounding to watch. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, 
that day he was paired with Ernie Els, who's the number one player in the world. And Ernie said that he had never heard a golf course that loud. I mean, when he chipped in for birdie on three, he said it was unbelievable. And the roar was ridiculous. And my dad was on the grounds that day. And he said that, you know, we knew exactly who was doing it. I mean, he's like, because every time the guy would make a birdie, it sounded like a bomb was going off. And, uh, but, you know, what killed him a little bit was he, he three putted on 12. He birdied 13 and 15, but that three putt on 12 kind of really halted him. He finished at five under, but I mean, the guy shot 68, four under, you know, as a 58 year old on Sunday at the Masters. So, I mean, it's pretty impressive for him to, you know, he finished tied for sixth and he he legitimately had a chance to win the tournament at one point. So it was pretty crazy. I I think he was only two or three shots behind uh, at one point. So I love it's pretty crazy. I loved his post round too. You can tell he was pissed. He was pissed. He was pissed. He legitimately thought, and he missed like a 20 footer on 18 that he really thought that if he got to six under, he'd have a chance. Um, Cause you know, you just never know at that point. And I think he, when he walked off the golf course, I mean, he was upset. I mean, he really thought that he could shoot 65, 66 that day and get back into contention. And it just shows you the competitor that he was. I mean, he had so much belief in himself that he, it didn't matter. I mean, he felt like he he was there. He was in touching distance, and that he could he could do it. And so that's he didn't really care what anybody else thought. Right. So, uh, question for you: Do you think of these characters? I mean, we've touched on a lot of them. We got a few more to go. Um, was Omera the least popular winner amongst this group? Uh, I mean, I think he was probably the guy that. You know, if you're a golf fan, you knew who Marco Mira was. But I think if you were the casual sports fan who was tuning into the Masters, you probably didn't really know um, his story. Might have heard his name before. I mean, you know, like I said, he had won 14 times, but he wasn't this, you know, superstar. He wasn't a guy that you probably would have heard of Freddie Couples or um, you probably would have knew who Paul Azinger was because he had been diagnosed with cancer and known his backstory. Um but and you know probably Phil Mickelson, obviously Jack Nicholas, but uh, you know I mean Jim Furyk, David Duvall, Marco Mary, probably guys. If unless you were you know diehard golf fans, you probably didn't know who they were. Uh, but you know I wouldn't say I think for the golf community, I think Mark was somebody that people were pulling for just because he hadn't won one yet. He was forty-one years old. This wasn't at that time. You know, it, it wasn't really common for guys after the age of, you know, 36, 37 to be playing well in their 40s. I mean, now it's, it kind of seems like the norm. I mean, Steve Stricker, Vijay Singh, Bernard Langer. I mean, those are guys that kind of, you know, started playing really well into their 40s and 50s. And um, but back then it really wasn't. It was more of a younger guy's game. And so I feel like, um, you know, for Mark to be able to, you know, be in contention at that point as a 41 year old was pretty rare. Um, you know, and, and he kind of had, he had a good pairing. I mean, he and Freddie couples, they played junior golf together. They knew they were good friends. Um, you know, and I think he was, he was pretty comfortable in that final pairing. Um, he knew, you know, what to expect. He was in the final pairing in 91 in the British open with, uh, Ian Baker Finch and Finchie ended up winning that tournament. But, um, I think that, you know, Mark, kind of knew what to expect. Uh, he was kind of the, you know, wily veteran at that point, And he understood, you know, the emotions of the day, uh, the ups and downs, what was going to happen. I mean, Mark only made one bogey all day, made a bogey on 10. But I think, you know, a lot of people forget. I mean, he birdied two, three, and four right out of the gate. He made about a 70-footer on the fourth hole, the par three. You know, after Freddie stuffed it in there to, uh, to about like 10 feet, um, 
on four and ended up making it on top of Mark. Mark makes a 70 footer. Those are things that, you know, after you win, you kind of look back and say, Hey, that, you know, that was huge. I mean, you're, you're not really thinking of it at that point, but when you look back, you're like, wow, I mean, I made a putt that, you know, I'd be lucky to two putt and I ended up making it. And so I think those are the things that, you know, he looks back on that. He says, you know, those were, those were huge momentum, momentum swings. And then, you know, he goes to, he goes to 16, he birdies the 15th hole. He goes to the 16th and he hits a shot to about 20 feet. And my dad was, you know, my dad was following him. If, you know, you don't know, my dad's been Mark Muir's agent since 1991, I think. So they've been together for a very long time. I mean, they've been together longer than my mom and my dad have been married. So, um, but, you know, he feels like he, you know, knows Mark as well as anybody. And he could tell by his body language after he struck his putt on uh, the 16th hole that he thought he made it and uh, just burned the edge. Mark falls to his knees and he felt like, you know, hey, that's as good as a putt. That's as good of a six iron as as good of a putt that I can hit. And he was walking to his set, to the seventeenth hole with his caddy Jerry Higginbotham, and uh, he told Jerry, he said, "Look, I'm going to birdie these next two holes, and we're going to win this thing." And Jerry was just kind of like, "Well, you know, if you know Mark, he's not that way. He doesn't talk that way. He's very you know, calm, easygoing guy." But I think that was just his competitiveness that was that kind of came out. He was like, "All right, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of you know losing and being so close. I, you know, we need to get this done." You know, I may never have this chance again in my life. So, you know, a little bit of backstory. I mean, Freddie was kind of hanging around. Um, you know, David Duvall went absolutely nuts on the back nine. Um, yeah, I think David made eight or nine birdies that day. Um, and then, you know, he birdied 13 and 15. He got to nine under. He ends up three putting on 16, and then he missed about a 20-footer for birdie on 18. Um, Freddie, he – looked like he was in control really all day. Uh, he was just kind of staying at eight, nine under all day long. And then he ends up making a double bogey on, uh, on 13. He ends up hooking this tee shot and into the hazard goes to, falls to six under and then Eagles 15 takes him back to eight under. And, uh, so when they were going to the 16th hole, Mark was one shot back of Freddie and, uh, and two shots back at that point of, of David Duvall. And, um, like I said, David bogey 16, misses that birdie putt on 18. So when Freddie and Mark were coming up, the 18th hole tied for the lead with David Duvall at eight under, um, David was sitting in the clubhouse with uh, Chairman Jack Stevens watching watching the tournament unfold. Man, yeah, these I got some notes around, around these guys. Uh, first, as Duvall was making that stretch, one thing that I absolutely – like there's been some tree management done at Augusta. I, there had to have been because there was a tree off of number 14 green just to the left of the green where I, I don't think you, I've, you've seen it since, but there's a shadow being casted over the green, like close to where the pin. So you obviously can tell this tree, you know, I guess it's getting down to the east, one of the final groups. So what are you, five o'clock maybe Eastern time, uh, latest. But um, you, you see that tree and, and David is, is, like you said, he's tearing up the back nine. He's making a charge. He hits that tree and, and yeah. his reaction, you know, with those shades and that stone cold killer attitude, he just looks at his caddy. He goes straight to his yardage book and just he's, you can tell he's in disbelief. He's like, how the F did I just hit that freaking tree? But like it knocked a leaf off that tree and he was still in a pretty good spot. I was like, wow. Right. Okay. Augusta, Augusta took that thing out. 
Well, it was literally, it was like a perfect shot. I mean, today it would have been a foot because everything off that slope funnels to the right. And he played it left of the pin. It, I mean, it was going to be absolutely perfect. And they, I mean, you can tell he wasn't even thinking about that tree in the fairway. He probably wasn't even, didn't even notice it was there. And he, he might've tugged it a bit, but I mean, I don't think, I mean, his reaction to the shot was like, he, he didn't really say anything. I mean, he felt like it, it looked like he knew exactly where it was going and then it ticked that tree and you can hear, he's like, did it hit that tree? That's what he said to his caddy in the middle of the fairway. He could, the microphone picked it up. And uh, I mean that, you know, he made par, he didn't, he didn't kill him, but I mean, you know, in hindsight, it could have, you know, I mean, that shot could have, instead of going to 40 feet, it could have gone to four feet. I mean, you never, you know, you never really know, but uh, yeah, I mean, that's, Definitely. I mean, you can, that's the kind of the cool thing looking back on these tournaments too, is you can notice the differences with the golf course that they've changed over the years. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, that's true. Yeah. It's really cool. You get to see there, there's some significant change. It, it, it's subtle probably year to year, but if you jump a whole decade, you can see that they've done things at Augusta national. Yeah. Um, let's go to Freddie. Because I like what okay. you were saying about about Mark. I'll, I'll use the contrast of O'Mara and Freddie because you know um, both obviously on top of their games, probably you know some of the best in their career. Um, if Mark seems like that oh shucks kind of guy, and then like you just mentioned with him turning to his caddy and saying you know we're gonna freaking win this thing. Um, he, he obviously got that like added little just get the job done mentality. Um, and and O'Mara has that swing that's so classic, and you know I grew up always hearing like, oh, Mark O'Mara, that simple, you know, move. That's what kids need to model after. Uh, Freddie, no one ever said that, right? Freddie had that big move, but I kept watching and I kept seeing a, a contrast in two things between O'Mara and Freddie. One, O'Mara's swing was like built for uh, high stress moments, you know, those pressure those pressure times because his tempo just was like so perfect and so such a simple move um and then freddie maybe the the least in the <laughs> at least at the leaderboard of that swing just because he relies so much on you know the 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 hands and the, and the arms and and the way that he kind of goes at it obviously a beautiful golf swing but when it comes down to pressure moments we we both know like the more moves you got the more variables there are and and he also looked frazzled uh, specifically on 13 freddie looked like he was kind of rushing a bit. He was like, he, you could tell he was out of sorts mentally. So I, I was curious to get your take on Freddie uh, on that back nine. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, he got it to nine under, he, bur- he birdies the eighth hole, he bogeys nine. So he's at eight under going to the back nine. Um, you know, like you talked about, you touched about his swing a little bit. Um, you know, obviously people talk about the tempo and, you know, how beautiful the move is and everything, but, you know, fundamentally it's not, you know, a perfect golf swing. I mean, it's very, he gets it very upright. He's very across the line. His downswing is unbelievable. I mean, what he does on the, on the downswing is money, but he's very, he's got a lot of timing issues or things that can go wrong in, in the heat of the moment. And um, I think, I think he was shocked, honestly, that Mark was hanging around. I think, I think that was the thing that I don't know if he'd ever admit that, but he probably figured that if, once he got to the back nine, he saw that Duvall was making a charge. He probably knew that that was the guy who was going to have to beat. He probably wasn't really thinking about Mark, um, just because you know Mark going to the back nine. He was at he was at seven and then he bogeyed ten. 
Um, Freddie's two going to the eleventh hole. Freddie's two shots ahead of Mark now, so he's probably figuring, "Hey, I don't really have to worry about Amira anymore." Duvall is right on my heels. He's at he, we're tied for the lead. Um, he's the guy that you know I'm going to really have to go head to head with. And uh, and Mark just kind of was that was kind of the perfect situation for Mo. I mean, he was kind of plotting his way around the golf course. People, I mean, he wasn't dropped from coverage or anything, but he, I, I don't even think the CBS guys. were probably figured him into the into the uh into the battle anymore and um you know mark i mean i kind of forgot about when we talked about mark going into that that year but he and tiger obviously they lived together in Iowa, and you know each year before the masters when they were living living there in the neighborhood they would always kind of have like a friendly little pre-masters game against each other and obviously the famous 59 that tiger shot in 97 and then he goes on to win the uh win the Masters by 12 shots uh, the next week. Uh, you know, Mark always tells a story about that. And, t- you know, it's been pretty well documented. But what people don't know or don't talk about is that in 98, the week before they played their match again, and Mark shot 60 at Outworth. He's one off Tiger's 59 pace. And so, you know, Tiger, it was kind of reversed going into 97. Mark was hyping Tiger. Hey, nobody's playing better than you. You're the best player in the world. You're going to win this thing by a million. You know, go out there and do what you got to do. And it was kind of reverse going into 98. Tiger was Mark's hype man. He was like, hey, Mo. He's like, you're, nobody's playing better than you. You're putting it lights out. You're, you know, you're the best player right now. He's like, you, you, this golf course should be perfect for you. You hit a draw. It's, you know, you got to hit draws off these tees. It's perfect. You just shot 60 hour worth on me. He's like, come on. He's like, this is your time. And, you know, I think Mark kind of started believing in himself. And, you know, it's funny. I mean, the guy, Mark finished second in putting statistics that week at the Masters in 98. And he said that he never felt comfortable with the stroke all week. He said that uh, uh, on Thursday on the 10th hole, he had about a 10-footer for par and he completely yipped it. And he's like, if I'm getting the yips on Thursday on the 10th green, he's like, could you imagine if I'm like actually needing a putt on the back nine on Sunday? He's like, he's like, what is going on? And so he (laughs) and his coach, his longtime coach, Hank Haney, they went straight to the putty. They didn't hit balls. They went straight to the putting green uh, on Thursday afternoon. And Hank said, Hey, you're, you know, your, your alignment's completely off. Let's open your feet up. Let's get your head tilted back. Let's get your shoulders pointed uh, towards the, to the left and get your feet pointed towards, or sorry, get your shoulders towards the right, your feet towards the left. And just kind of to feel like it's, you know, Mark's kind of looking at him like, Hey, I mean, the greens are going to be like 15 tomorrow and you're, you're going to make me do completely change my entire putting setup <laughs> within the next 24 hours. But Mark said that he, his putting started feeling a little better day in and day out. And then, um, you know, and then obviously when, Push came to shove, you know, he hits a great putt on 16 and then 17, you know, Mark, he, he had a perfect tee shot on 17. He hit a nine iron to about 10 feet, just above the hole, made a left to right slider that really nobody makes on that green. I mean, that's, that thing's yeah. straight downhill left to right. He had to play about two cups out and trust the break and poured it right in the heart. And then uh, Mark always talks about on 18 at Augusta it's really one of the only tee shots that you kind of have to hit a cut off those bunkers. And so Mark says that he always, being a drawer of the ball, that was a tee shot that was just extremely uncomfortable for him. And, uh, you know, going into the 72nd hole of the Masters, tied with two other guys, knowing what you need to do, 
I think that was, you know, as stressful of a time as any in his career. And he was able to hit just a perfect little two yard cut off those bunkers. And he, he says that he always thought about Jack Nicholas after that, because Jack would always give him grief about the fact that he couldn't hit a cut. And so he always kind of said, Hey, you know, Jack, there's your cut for you. And then, uh, <laughs> and then went to, you know, he was in the middle of the fairway on 18 hits a seven iron to about you know 20 feet, just right of the cup. And, um, you know, that kind of set up everything to to end the tournament. Man, that story about Omera shooting 60 is pretty cool. I've never heard that. That's funny, though, that, like, people love to talk about the 59 from Tiger year before. I think people – that's that's cool. I didn't I didn't know that he, he had done that. Well, I'll go to this. So, Nance, we talked about Freddie being in the hunt. And on 13, he really kind of evaporated, right? I mean, Freddie hits it on the service road. Yeah. I mean, he does, but then, you know, so he makes double. And so now you're thinking he drops a six under and now you're thinking, you know, it's going to be Duvall and O'Meara and then going to 15, Freddie hits it to like two feet and makes Eagle. So now he's right back in it. And so now you're thinking, okay, now it's Mark's at seven Duvall and uh, Freddie are at eight. So now it's between these three guys. These are, I mean, Furyk was at, Furyk was at seven. Uh, it's right. Furyk makes on. They did. They did not do a whole lot on Furyk. Like, for definitely not the front nine. Definitely not. And then I just love that about the Masters coverage. Sometimes it's like, where the hell did Jim Furyk come from? And his fashion sense of the time is also very noteworthy. I actually, I, I have a whole piece on the fashion of 1998 that that I'll get to here shortly. But um, even Nance too. Like back to to your boy Mark O'Mara. He, you can tell a little bit. I mean, Jim Nance is a professional. You're in the broadcasting business. You understand. He is so good. But you can tell in his voice that he is pulling from his college roommate, Freddie Couples. Like, and that's not just 98. There are other years where you can hear it oh, in his yeah. voice. He, he always has those like one or two stories about Freddie growing up and like his exact, you know, street name that he lived on and you know, the things he dreamed about as a kid, like he can just tell that Jimmy is pulling for his buddy, Freddie. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, during the whole broadcast and like you said, not even in that specific year. I mean, there's other, there are years when he was, you know, in his fifties and shooting, you know, 66 on the first day and playing great, you know, all week. And you could tell that Nance would, like you said, he'd just pull out like obscure facts from his life that you know that he only he would know. And uh, I mean, that's, you know, that's fine. I mean, I guess that's, you know, they're buddies. They've known each other since college. So, I mean, it'd be like, you know, if, you know, if I was in the lead at the Masters and my roommate was doing the broadcast, I mean, I'm sure that he, you know, it'd be the same kind of thing. So I like that you put yourself as the one winning the Masters and not the broadcaster. That's very, that yeah, is confidence right that. there, my friend. That is confidence. Uh, uh, Nance did foreshadow, though. He, they went to commercial, and he, he said something about there being, you know, this could be, you know, the first time a winning putt on the 18th at Augusta uh, happens in a decade or something along those lines. Yeah. And, um, you know, so David Duvall, he's sitting in the clubhouse at Ander, and he's in Butler Cabin now with uh, the chairman, Jack Stevens, at the time. And so Mark hits it to, you know, Freddie – hits it in the middle of fairway too. And people, as you're watching this, you kind of forget that Freddie's also at eight under. I mean, there's three guys at eight under, so it looks like they're going to go into a three man playoff. And, um, and that time they started on the 10th hole. And so it looks like they're just going to go to 10 and um, Freddie ends up hitting a, his, I think he ends up hitting an eight iron and wiping it into the right bunker. And um, so it looks like he's going to have a tough time making birdie. And, 
Mark hits a great shot to, you know, 15, 20 feet, just right of the hole. And uh, Freddie blasts out to about four feet. So it looks like he's in for par. So now the stage is kind of set. Mark knows what he has to do. If he's going to make it, if he, he wins, if not, he's going to go to a playoff. And, uh, you know, right as Mark's getting ready to putt, Chairman Jack Stevens kind of leans over to David. And David had just had Mark's putt about 20 minutes earlier to get to nine under and barely missed it just low on the left side. And so Jack looks at David and he looks at him and he goes, David, he goes, don't worry about this. He goes, nobody makes this putt at this pin location. He goes, nobody makes this putt. He goes, you're going to go to a playoff. Just get ready. And so David just kind of, you know, laughed and didn't say anything. And so Mark always says that when he was over his putt, he just told himself, don't, you know, just hit a good putt. He's like, I don't care. He's like, you know, Obviously, I wanted to go in, but he told himself, you know, you're going to have to make a putt sometime either now or, you know, in the playoff to win this tournament. He's like, why can't it just be now? He's like, just hit a good putt, trust your line, and, you know, just make a good stroke. And he said about halfway there, he thought it was in. Um, he thought that, it, you know, it was tracking. The speed was right. He, he knew it was in the center, and it started breaking pretty hard, which he wasn't expecting. And so he said that his last sec- his last thought about a foot away from the hole was, please don't lip out. Don't catch the lip and lip out. He's like, that's he's like, that would just be heartbreaking. Like, I can't deal with that. If you're going to miss, just don't even touch the hole. And he said, and then, you know, as you watch the, as you watch, you know, turn out, he catches the lip and it kind of curls in that backside. And he didn't, you know, obviously he didn't even know what to do. He kind of just puts his hands up and, you know, he's in absolute disbelief. And, uh, Jack Stevens back at Butler cabin. He kind of looks at David. He gets up, shakes his hand. He goes, David, great playing this year. He goes, we're happy to see you next year. We can't wait. And uh, David's kind of ushered out of Butler cabin and they're getting ready for, you know, the CBS broadcast. Wow. Yeah. That, that putt, you can you show it plenty, you know, it is such a pure role. Yeah. And, but you can tell it's holding on by a thread on that line. Uh, so cool. So cool. Um, so into Butler Cabin, can we talk about just how awkward Butler Cabin is in general? Again, Jim Nance is a, is a stud, and and he conducts great interviews. But I just think the whole setup, like no people, um, the uh, oh, you know, one person we didn't talk about before we get to the Butler Cabin because he he shows up at this point. Cooch, we forgot yeah. about Cooch. Cooch is is the youngest yeah. guy to make the cut. Nineteen year old amateur smiling his his dorky face off i mean he was uh him (laughs) between him tiger and because tiger's there obviously put the jacket on on mark uh but between those three i think they might be the the geekiest golfers ever to be professional like the way each of them talk is so like oh shucks gee golly you know, like I could, I counted uh, how many times Mark O'Mara, and he's in shock. The guy, give him a break, right? But he said super and nice. It was nice. It was super. He said it like six times. I, I, uh, I just could. I just was laughing out loud watching Cooch, a 19-year-old like acne face Cooch, uh, Mark O'Mara and Tiger next to each other. It was something. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's kind of a. <laughs> kind of a funny scene <laughs> after the tournament was over but uh yeah i mean i don't know i'm not a big cooch well, fan so <laughs> many are my wife loves the man uh so i have to tolerate it but um it's all the smiling it's it's fake or not she loves it uh i'm curious do you know just 
this touches a little bit more on like Mark O'Mara personally, but you know, him and Tiger, everyone, it was so publicized. Like you said, the relationship, like, are they still friends? What kind of happened to their friendship? I feel like they were the original JT, uh, Spieth bromance for a while. Um, did they, did they fall out with each other or? Well, Mark just, Mark just moved to Houston. Um, you know, from out of Iowa and they're still friends. I mean, they still play, you know, they still played practice rounds together when Mark was playing, uh, still playing the masters and they, they just didn't see each other as much. So that was all. And then Mark, obviously he's a lot older than Tiger. So he was on the senior tour at that point and Mark and Tiger's still on the PGA tour. So they just didn't really see each other that much. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. And he calls them uh, when he puts the jacket on him, he says, congrats. Does he say yeah. Mo or M O Mo? He calls him Mo. Okay, yeah, I thought that yeah. T- Tiger is the king of nicknames. Um, yeah, that's. Mark. I mean, that's been Mark's nickname for Mo or Mo. I mean, everybody called Mark's son Sean calls him Mo, so everybody calls him Mo. So before before we leave, the one thing I kept jotting down here in my notes as I'm watching this round, and I hope people that dive into these, you know, I, I'm having so much fun. We might even do a third if you're up for it, but. You know, we're going to do another one of these coming up for another decade, and maybe we'll do the, a, a third for a different decade. But uh, the fashion sense. So, like, as much as I was watching the golf, I was more looking at what the hell these guys are wearing. So, 1998, late 90s, we're talking baggy pants with massive pleats. All right, so that was pretty standard. Mark actually looked more like your Jim Harbaugh Dockers dad, and and I actually think it was, like, a better look. But the thing that was definitely prevalent in the 98 is uh, the dichotomy of hats. I couldn't believe how different these guys wore their hats. So Freddie wore the classic tour visor with the Lynx visor, black cat. Yeah. That was dope. Um, Freddie kind of looked the most normal, I would say. He, he was the only guy that looked like he could still he play today and nobody would, nobody would uh, question it. But everybody else, Duvall looked terrible. Mark, yeah. <laughs> I don't really know what he was wearing with the all brown, whatever. Uh, Mark was awful. Tiger Mark looked terrible. Omera had all the Toyota. Um, your dad obviously had a nice relationship with Toyota because he got it on his sleeve, his chest, his hat. He he was all uh, you know big big <laughs> uh, GM um, or Toyota. Uh, Furick looked like he was wearing his dad's corduroy fishing hat. Uh, Nicholas looked like he could have been Furyk's dad. Um, Jay Haas, very brief showing on the telecast. He's wearing a MaxFly logo that is about four sizes too big. I mean, it takes up like the front side and back of his hat. Uh, Phil, no hat. Love that. Of course, Phil's not wearing a hat. Unbelievable. Um, Joe Kreibel, other am that made the cut. It was Matt Kuchar and Joe Kreibel. He's rocking... He's, yeah, he's rocking that Stanford hat that everyone, if you lived in the 90s, you had some university with that same script, you know, where it would be big on top in the in the embroidery of, of the colors of your team and then small full name on the bottom. But he had that, uh, that design, which which brought me back. Uh, Duvall, <laughs> I think Duvall looked like your college, um, like <laughs> the, the hat that your your college drug dealer would wear basically um backwards like it was like really loose and it didn't look like 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 wind blew it would just knock it right off uh zinger zinger looked like your actual college drug dealer like he had the long hair out the back uh 
<laughs> big baggy pleated pants. I, I love Zinger's look. Still do. Uh, and then Tiger, you know, Tiger, as geeky as he actually is, uh, he actually looked pretty cool. He always kind of looks cool. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm not a big fashion guy. I don't know that much about it. Well, I think, I mean, we covered a lot, man. Um, two other notes I had here that you didn't touch on because the Gary Player makes the cut, oldest player ever at the time. Yeah. I'm sure that probably still holds. Um, and uh, oh, oh, Furick, I also got a kick out of how often the commentators uh, referenced his putting grip and how unconventional it was, he's crosshand. Think about that. Yeah. Like, in 2020, would you ever hear a telecast go, oh, here's an unconventional crosshand putting grip. His father forced him to do it when he was a child. You know, it was, it, like, you, you go out on, on a PGA Tour event now, you see hundreds of different putting styles. And uh, yeah, I thought Conventional that was- is now unconventional. Nowadays. Exactly. Right. Right. Probably isn't the majority. It's nuts. Yeah. Well, cool, man. This was uh, this was really fun. Hopefully, people get a kick out of getting a little bit more of these inside untold stories on on these tournaments. Um, you got great knowledge for it, man. Uh, enjoyed this one. Looking forward to our our next our next uh, episode. You yeah. want to tease out what which one you pick next? Yeah, I mean, I picked the 2011 Masters. I think it's pretty pretty interesting. Just a lot of a lot of different people in that tournament. I mean, they. The lead changed eight times that day. Um, you had Tiger coming back from, you know, his post hitting the fire hydrant. Um, you know, Adam Scott and Jason Day trying to become the first Australians to win the Masters. You had a 21-year-old Rory McIlroy who's looking to become the second youngest player to win the tournament. He had a four-shot lead going on Sunday. He was paired with past champion Anel Cabrera in the final group there. Um, just a ton, of, a good, ton of different storylines different people that were kind of in and out guys that, you know, you hadn't seen all day. And then all of a sudden, you know, Jeff Ogilvy had a share for the league going in the 16th hole. I mean, it was just crazy. I can't wait. I can't wait to watch that one. And uh, I'll have my fashion notes ready. Don't worry. <laughs> PJ, thanks, thanks for doing this, man. It's given us some, uh, some entertainment during these, these dark days of isolation. So hopefully some folks enjoy 98 masters in front of their couch this weekend. And uh, thanks for being on, man. Looking forward to talking to you soon. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks, man.